Welcome to Between the Gutters Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bhutan. This is Albert Lamb. And this is where we talk about the stories between the panels. Within the panels. Within the panels. <laughs> So much for that. <laughs> you want to keep that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Look, we're doing this off the cuff. We are okay? human. We are not using scripts. This is free we're flowing. Not robots. Exactly. The 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 best type of art is, you know, pulled from thin air. We improvise. Yes. Although we actually know what we're going to talk about today. Yes. What are we talking about today? Today we are continuing our countdown of the 25 greatest marvels of all time. Yes, yes, that is what we are doing. Yes. What are we at, Drew? We are at number six. So we are very close to the top five. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about number six. What do we have at number six? We have Akira by Katushiro Otomo. That's right. This might come as a surprise to all of y'all, but... We wanted to choose something that would drop a little knowledge, something mm-hmm. that's outside of the scope of what would stereotypically be considered a a traditional Marvel comic. Uh, we just wanted to show you the scope and breadth of all the different things that they've done, and mm-hmm. uh, we felt that this was a comic that gave you that variety. And uh, although we're aware that Marvel didn't necessarily create it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they did publish it. Exactly. Yeah. If if uh, you've heard of Akira, it could be because of you that you've heard of the movie, which is one of the most famous and one of the most critically acclaimed anime films of all time. But it was originally a manga. This manga was. Written and illustrated by Katsuhiro Otomo. Originally serialized from 1982 to 1990 in the pages of Young Magazine uh, in Japan, which was published by Kodansha, and eventually it was collected into six volumes. But the reason why it's eligible to fall into our top 25 greatest Marvels of all time is because Marvel Comics was actually the first... Uh, company to print the translation of Akira in America. So back in the 80s, Epic Comics was an imprint of Marvel. In the past episodes of throughout our countdown, we've discussed the various imprints that Marvel has had. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, they had the icon imprint for their creator-owned comics where when we talked about Criminal, Savage Sword of Conan Mm -hmm. was published under their magazine line. Uh, and Epic Comics was Marvel's creator-owned imprint that they began in 1982, and it, it lasted up as, up until about the mid-90s. They published comics like Dreadstar, which was by Jim Starlin, the guy who created Thanos. Mm. Other comics like Void Indigo, Alien Legion, Grew by Sergio Aragones, Moonshadow by one of our favorite writers, J.M. DeMatteis. ElfQuest, Martial Law. So a lot of these indie comics that had a lot of, that have lasting power, those were published by Epic Comics and eventually to boost sales and and boost life into the imprint, they started publishing 
uh, Marvel characters. So that's why, if you've ever heard of Elektra Assassin by Frank Miller and Bill Sinkovich, that Mm -hmm. was under the line. Silver Surfer Parable by Stan Lee and Mobius was another one. Yeah. But Epic uh, also became one of the first American comic book publishers to publish translated editions of foreign comics, including uh, European comics. They published some Mobius comics like Airtight Garage uh, and The Incal, and of course, Akira. So when <clears throat> when Marvel got the rights to do a translation and adaptation of... Not adaptation, but a translation and a westernized uh, version of Akira, they published it from 1988 to 1995. It was 38 uh, giant size issues. So these are like prestige format bound comics that have a spine. Yeah. The original manga was in black and white. Uh, as we as we know, most manga is typically black and white. Yeah. And Marvel decided that putting it into color would be would make it more palatable for Western American audiences. audience. Yeah, Western audience. And not only that, but because the Japanese read from right to left, uh, Marvel actually flipped the art so that we could read uh, the manga from left to right like a traditional uh, American comic. Mm. There were major delays for the last eight or so issues, maybe because uh, Katsuhiro Otomo actually did do some retouching of the art for the Japanese editions, so that might have affected uh, the American publication. Marvel also reprinted these issues in paperback volumes. They were trying to do the whole series within 13 volumes, but I guess towards the end, for whatever reason, uh, they weren't able to complete it. And mm-hmm. they were also doing hardcover collections. So they were going to do six, but they only did f- five, I believe. So it's actually, it was actually incomplete in terms of the collected editions, but they did publish the entire series, all 38 issues um, of the whole series. Then later on, because Marvel doesn't actually own Akira, uh, they ended up losing their rights, and in the early 2000s, uh, Dark Horse Comics gained the rights to publish Akira. So they published it in its original six-volume black-and-white yep. versions with a revised translation. And we had that for maybe about a decade or so, and then um, maybe around 2009, I think, Kodansha Comics gained the rights, and they reprinted Akira in volumes that were very similar to the Dark Horse editions, but in 2017, uh, for the 35th anniversary, Kodansha released a special box set, an anniversary box set, which was a hardcover collection of all six volumes of Akira. And it also contained uh, a rare uh, art book called Akira Club. But this, what was special about this collection, besides that it was a box set hardcover uh, collection, is that it presented the story in its original right-to-left format. Mm. So it was the unflopped artwork. Yeah. So that's just a little context for you, a little, uh, I don't know, history lesson for... That's a lot of context. (laughs) Akira in America. Yeah. So in regards to why this cracks our top ten, why this makes it... uh, let's, Let's take a look at some of the elements of it. Uh, we've established that in terms of 
what we look at when we decide what makes it to our top 25 um, comics, we've established that the craft is mm-hmm. something is something that we take a look at. So uh, it's hard to look at this book and just not notice just how well it is produced. You know, I mean, uh, the artwork in and of itself is just hi- highly detailed and just amazing to look at. Mm-hmm. Ka- uh, Katushiro Otomo, he's got an amazing eye for detail and um, you can just pour through pages and pages of it and just see everything from how he draws cityscapes to the level of detail that he puts into technology such as battleships and helicopters or even the motorcycles that the the, the gangs use um oh um do you want to before we dive too deep into the craft do you want to briefly summarize the story of Akira oh, so yeah. that people can understand what it's of actually course. about. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> so, um, Akira takes place in a not-too-distant version of the future, of their future. So, it, it's... It was written, originally written in the early 80s. Yeah. So, their version of the future was actually 2019. Yeah, so, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> Funny thing is, is, is yeah. that... In the Akira comic, they they keep talking about so Tokyo has been devastated back in the eighties by a a massive impact or yeah. explosion decimated the city. So they're in this now they call it Neo Tokyo. Yeah, and in twenty twenty they're about to celebrate uh, the Olympics coming yeah. to Neo Tokyo, which yeah. is funny because next year the, the Olympics, Olympics are actually going to be in Tokyo. <laughs> Somebody in the Olympic committee had a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this uh yeah, this story takes place in a in a fictionalized future version of Japan in in a post crisis era. So in our real world um Japan uh Japan exists in a state where they have come where where we've seen the progression after World War II and after the atomic bomb and in their version of Japan uh, there was a similar catastrophe but we don't we don't really know what it is until much later in the story um, and what we've seen in in the aftermath of their reconstruction in this new Japan is we see a world that, Although has it has all these technological advances, we see that the people haven't been really improved by it, and the technologies have just kind of been squandered as we just kind of use it to, or as they rather use it to just kind of pleasure themselves and, um, and yeah, it's it's not really the the future that we envision uh, in the sense that it's not a Star Trek kind of utopian future. Yeah. So it's this is a dystopian future. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so a big part of the story is it centers around uh, a biker gang and their leader Canada and Canada. Canada. <laughs> 
And what ends up happening is one night while they're out gallivanting, uh, they one of his friends, Tetsuo, ends up getting into an accident where um, he begin, he gets exposed to, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, some sort of... Like a psychic emanation? Yeah, like a psychic emanation or an energy field. And as a result, he gets taken in by the government. And what ends up... What Akira or uh, Kenneth Canada? Oh, an emanation or was, it was one it was of the, the kids. Actual kids. Yeah, one of the other psychics. Yeah, I don't know what. Yeah, I guess I was gonna say mutant, but I didn't really know if they yeah. were even really mutants. But so um, uh, Tetsuo, his uh, Canada's friend, ends up being taken uh, by the government, and what we end up seeing is um, Canada trying to get his friend back, but at the same time we find out that the government has been secretly experimenting on these kids with psychic ability. Yeah. And the, the top secret, the, the most, I guess you could call it successful, uh, experiment is this kid called Akira. Mm -hmm. Um, so the first chunk of the story is them trying to, get their friend back Canada trying to get their friend back and just exposing all these uh high level secrets but towards the middle of the story what ends up happening is Tetsuo more or less reaches the upper end of his potential and it turns out he's got psychic powers yeah, also turns out through his interaction with these kids they've activated the psychic powers in him and he ends up unleashing this psychic nuclear blast uh for the better lack of a term and it completely upends everything in neo tokyo in japan really well technically akira does that oh that's true akira does that so yeah so at, at some point in the film in the book uh akira is awakened and uh japan itself is just torn asunder and what we see is civilization beginning to come up from the ashes of this catastrophe of this second catastrophe mm -hmm. and um it's a post-apocalyptic story that has its own apocalypse in the middle yeah, of the story exactly <laughs> exactly that's a good way to put it so so um yeah that's that's more or less the story um like i'll i'll probably go into more detail into what the conclusions are as we uh, go into it but um it's a story that has a lot of, um, it mirrors a lot of what was, what, what I guess was in the, uh, zeitgeist of Japan at the time. Right. Uh, and I, it's, it's a big part of, uh, what they were feeling about their social anxiety, I guess. And, uh, what, what it was like to become this superpower, in the wake of World War Two and you know uh, societal devastation uh, after the war, mm -hmm. yeah, does, does that accurately yeah, sum it up? I think so. Yeah, this is uh, what we're saying is this is a very deep and intricate work. Yeah, if you've seen the movie, um, the movie is a very condensed version of the comic book's plot. Yeah, the original manga is 
quite lengthy. Like we said, it's six volumes. That's clocking in around 2,000 pages or so, thereabouts. And when Otomo started working on the movie, he worked on the movie during a hiatus. So he took a break from the comic. So he, the comic wasn't even finished, and he started working on the movie. Yeah. So he had an idea of what he wanted to do. But if you compare the movie to the comics, the comics clearly go into greater depth and detail into all of the characters and the story. Yeah. It's just a lot uh, more detailed. But... Yeah, I mean the movie is a classic for a good reason. Yeah. But today we're we want to focus more on the on the manga. Yeah. But if you just if you don't have time to track down the manga for whatever reason, I do recommend watching the movie. Yeah. It's, it'll give you a good taste. Yeah, you can't really go wrong. And if anything, I do think that watching the movie puts you in a position like with me watching the movie made me want to read the comic yeah or vice versa you know like you you get different things from it like with most works by creators when they have a chance to if they're working on multiple things they a lot of the times get to explore different aspects of the same themes over and over again and i would say that uh akira is no different uh, for Katsushiro Otomo, if only because... I, I mean, I, I don't want to say that the movie was some sort of testing ground for what he would ultimately do yeah. uh, for the comic, but, you know, there, it, there's, it provides insight into his mind and what he was trying to communicate. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, was, I experienced the movie well before I read the comic. And I think the movie... For a lot of, uh, I guess, first-time viewers, sometimes people watch the movie and say, oh, this is kind of confusing, or parts of it don't make sense. Yeah. But if you read the comic, it, the, the comic makes a lot more sense. I think it's easier... I think the movie makes sense, but I think the comic is easier to understand. Yeah. It's easier to penetrate yeah. um, what's going on. But anyway, yeah. let's... Uh, we started talking a little bit about the craft of... Yeah this manga so what what were you what are your thoughts on it what makes the craft of this comic worthy of inclusion in the top 25 the more that i think about it the more i feel like it's akira is a book that's on the surface very simple it's very accessible to read it's very like the the storytelling from panel to panel is pretty Mm self-explanatory and maybe at a at first glance it doesn't seem like you're getting too much out of it it's not a particularly dense piece of work there isn't yeah. necessarily a lot of text but it does a good job of communicating everything that it needs to communicate using mood mm-hmm. and uh just the sequential storytelling yeah you know so although on the surface it seems like it's a really simple book i do think there's complexities to it there's a lot of complexities to it it. there's a lot exactly and yeah i don't i don't want to i don't want people to associate depth with density because that's just not true like someone can have a lot to say but not necessarily have depth (laughs) (laughs) very true yeah and uh and um and whereas the opposite is also true where someone can not have a lot to say, but show a lot of profundity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, back to the artwork. Uh, so, Katsushiro Tomo 
as I was uh, mentioning earlier, you can see just how much detail that he puts into everything from the way that he draws technology like battleships and helicopters and even the designs for the motorcycle that Canada uses mm-hmm. to stuff like the cityscapes, like some of the uh, visuals of just Neo Tokyo. The are... detail is incredibly exacting. Like yeah. he draws every single window in yeah. a skyscraper. <laughs> it's stunning stuff to yeah. look at, you know, and like, yeah, even for something like a cityscape where we've all seen buildings and you, you wouldn't think that that in and of itself is a lot to look at. It's like, oh, it's just a building or whatever. But if you pay real close attention and just look at how much effort went into making that building look as real as possible, there's there's something to be impressed with by that you know yeah it's 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 almost like this idea where i can draw a rock and we all know what a rock looks like but just look at how he drew that rock yeah exactly yeah so um and in addition to his ability to draw like technology and uh technical things uh there's also i don't know how to put this but he draws viscera and he draws like <laughs> flesh in a way that bodies aren't like he draws people and like for the most part people look the way that they're supposed to look but when he does draw um things that are from his imagination uh-huh like you you're it's it's impressive just how disgustingly real yeah. <laughs> or like he gives he gives the um he gives the viscera an element of just grossness, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, it's not just... It's not just goo. It's not just a, a tumor. Like, there's... there's It feels gross. Yeah. If, if that makes any there's sense. There's something abominable about it when yeah. you look at it. I think he really does a great job with conveying the consequences of violence. Yeah. Because when you see things like that that cause viscera to spew forth yeah you it doesn't i mean i guess if you looked at it maybe you could think oh he's glorifying some sort of violence but on another level if you take the time to think about the story that he's communicating there's also a sense of this is really horrible and maybe there is an aspect of glorifying it by showing it but at the same time you're naturally kind of reviling it too. Like you don't, yeah. like you don't want to see those things come out of people. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Another aspect of his writing or his storytelling in general that I, I think is a uh, just very remarkable is is how because he is the artist artist and uh, writer. He has enough confidence in himself to communicate the story through the visuals. So he's not constantly relying on exposition and dialogue and narrative captions to tell you what's going on when your eye can easily see it on the page. Yeah. And I think that's what helps it not feel like a dense piece of work because it is long, but it's not dense and there's a lot of story in it, but it's it's not dense as you consume it, but there is 
as you said, profundity and depth to it. Yeah. As you read his story, you'll notice how he's brave enough to have many pages in a row with minimal dialogue or even no dialogue. Yeah. Where you just you're just seeing what's going on, whether it's uh, destruction or even just characters that are interacting with people, um, or just he uses he uses the characters to communicate uh, what they're th- feeling just through their facial expressions or their posture. One sequence that particularly stood out uh, at the end of Volume 3, there is a scene when uh, Akira causes a massive explosion in the city and Otomo spends straight up about 40 pages showing massive destruction on a citywide scale. Yeah. So you're just watching 30, 40 pages of an explosion unfolding yeah. and then all these buildings toppling, crumbling... Uh, streets being wrecked and ruined, the highways crashing down, uh, the oceans coming in and just swallowing up the the buildings. It there's a lot of it crazy feels like a disaster. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> yeah. a disaster. It's a it's it's um what what's the technical term for it? Destruction porn on a massive yeah. scale. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly. And I think the thing that to keep in mind to just remind you of just the the scope of how impressive it is like a dude drew this man i yeah. mean we 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 watch movies where like the day after tomorrow or something where people use computer graphics to you know put on screen uh all this stuff that we see and we're kind of just in awe of the spectacle of it all but just the very idea that uh, Otomo drew this by hand. Yeah. That's, that's nuts. Yeah, and when you look at the imagery, even of this scene of destruction, the way that he draws the buildings crumpling and, and falling down, it... Okay, I don't know if that's how buildings would actually fall, but seeing him depict it that way, I yeah. believe it. You know, yeah. like, there's... The, the physics feel real, and the details of the building with all the windows drawn, and you can mm. see all the like various cracks in the textures in the walls. Um, it's just so realistic yeah. that I'm willing to completely buy into what I'm seeing. It's, yeah. it's such a realistic uh, and detailed style of drawing. Yeah. These people, like another thing about his people, I was going to mention it earlier, I just thought about it, but uh, you, you were saying how his character designs are outstanding. Like Another thing I like about his character designs is, is that Everybody is distinct. And they all, yeah. they all have. There's a big cast of characters, but they all have uh, a sp- distinct personality. Like you'll recognize them when you see them, even if there's some characters that don't show up for a couple hundred pages. When they come back, you recognize them because it's hard to forget them. Yeah. Even the characters <clears throat> that are just minor characters. He even draws characters that have different proportions and body types, so it, it actually feels like a real world that different people inhabit, and they're just trying to make their way through it. Yeah. Um, just a little more uh, in terms of his designs also. I, I also wanted to go into one of the most iconic images of Akira when people talk about it mm-hmm. is uh Kaneda's motorcycle. Yeah. And I don't 
I'm not the most articulate person when it comes to like describing these things, but it's just a cool motorcycle. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, like I feel like that says it all. It, I mean, even at the time, uh, it's just a really sleek, modern design. You know, yeah. to to the point where even now it's it's kind of the height of you know uh technology and anime you know it's uh, iconic it's it's very iconic it's so if you don't if you've never read akira or you don't you don't never seen the movie um even the poster you one of the major images of the poster is kaneda on his motorcycle and it's this red a uh, super futuristic looking motorcycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Could you d- describe it? Is there any way for you to describe it? It's hard to describe it. It is, right? It's like, I, I just want to show somebody a picture of it. Yeah. So we'll, we'll have to post a picture of that on the Instagram. We will, we will. But it's it's not your stereotypical like Western motorcycle um, that you would imagine. It's not like a Harley or something. Yeah. But... I guess it's in the vein of, like, it's almost like if a missile had wheels. Yeah, and just looked super sleek. The other thing that it, I was gonna say was, if anyone's ever seen Tron, I guess it reminds uh, yeah. me of one of those one of those uh, cycles that when, they use. What year did Tron come out? Was that before Akira or after? That's a good question. I I don't know. That is a good question. We should yeah. find that. Find we that shall out. we shall look it up. But yeah, it's it's sort of it, I guess it reminds me of like a mech or something like that because it's one of those motorcycles where if you get into it, there are like all these moving parts and you it kind of locks you in mm-hmm. and yeah, it's it's almost like you're riding around in a missile, yeah. a red hot missile. Yeah. <laughs> that looks cool. That looks cool, exactly. <laughs> Um, in addition to that, um, another iconic image that comes from the movie is it's the image of Tetsuo after his arm's been blasted off. Mm-hmm. And at this point, his powers have taken on a life of their own almost. And his his uh, his arm has been blasted by this satellite. He's lost one of his arms. But what ends up happening is it reconstitutes itself with all the technology and bits of flesh that are still around and it just becomes this massive tumor. So here you have this regular looking dude who's got a regular looking teenager who's got pretty standard proportions and then you look at his arm and it's just this massive glob that it it has some semblance to a fist or a hand and like you know that it's got these pieces but at the same time it's just all fleshy and oozy and it ain't natural. doughy it's not natural at yeah. all you know and uh at at one point in the film like it more or less takes over his body and begins to like consume people around him yeah. so it, like it starts absorbing people into itself it's super he gross. He loses control and he loses basically control. just turns into this crazy, uncontrollable blob. Yeah. Almost looks like a gigantic fetus. Yeah, the final state is it ends up becoming a fetus. Yeah. Like a skinless fetus. A skinless, giant baby fetus that's destroying 
and boils and things. Yeah, and just sucking people up into itself. <sighs> very, very creative imagery. Yeah. The other thing that stands out about the story is that even though it's a couple thousand pages, it's it still feels very fast paced. Yeah. But he gives proper attention to the action as well as the character moments as well as the thematic content. So you never really feel like he's neglected any of the elements of really solid storytelling. Everything that he does keeps the story moving and also develops the characters and also works on enhancing the overall themes and the message of the book, which is... No easy feat considering how long and ambitious it is. Yeah. But I think because uh, he's confident in his artwork to tell the story, you'll have those scenes that are what nowadays I guess we would call them decompressed storytelling, right? Where you have a lot of pages spent showing a scene that if it were filmed as a movie, it might only take up, you know, five or six seconds or so, like a short amount of time. But seeing it on the page, you see every frame basically uh, as its own moment and it gives you that, just gives you that heightened sense of tension as you see things build up and the payoff is always incredibly worth it. Yeah. It's it's very deliberate in that sense. Uh, Like you mentioned earlier, he does about, what, 40 pages of just Japan being destroyed by this psychic blast. And again, in a movie, that would just be... 10 minutes maybe of you just watching 5-10 minutes of stuff happening maybe even less maybe even less it could even be something like 2 minutes 3 minutes yeah yeah but he wanted to painstakingly show in splash pages and in panels just everything that was going on yeah and just from all sorts of perspectives all over the city so you're just watching this devastation and you're just watching people run from it you're watching what's happening to the waters as they flood the cities you're watching you see buildings topple and you know you like he gets it right down to the detail of just every rock and pebble and like particle of dust just coming out (laughs) so it's it's as yeah it's like i was saying earlier it's just painstaking in how much he wants you to know hey this city is being destroyed yeah (laughs) yeah the the other impressive thing about Akira is is how the story on the surface it just seems so simple because if yeah. you really boil it down it, it's it's just about uh, these delinquents who end up one of them ends up getting these psychic powers and, and meets these other psychics that have crazy powers and yeah. then the government wants them but the rest of the delinquents nobody trusts the government right yeah the military and then chaos ensues from that yeah. but so he takes this simple premise and he's able to expound on it and tell a story yeah that i mean we're kind of getting into the, like impact territory here but like it feels like that's a simple story but that's only because everybody else has done some sort of version yeah. of that after akira you know like akira had a massive influence in kind of establishing yeah. this sort of cyberpunk setting like a dystopian cyberpunk yeah. science fiction setting um so his otomo's vision in crafting yeah. the world of his story you know that that says a lot about 
his imagination and about um, the clarity that he could communicate his vision on the yeah. page. Well, so I want to add to that by taking a step back to um, one of our other criteria, which mm-hmm. is the originality of it. Yeah. So you're right in the sense that on the surface, it's a very, it's a very standard story, right? Mm-hmm. It's like uh, there've probably been all sorts of uh, bastardized versions of it, where it's a story about kids who run into a secret project and they go on an adventure. Yeah. So there's... The theme is youth and revolt. Yeah. But we can say that that trope is played out because Akira was kind of one of the earlier versions to or stories to do it and to establish a lot of the tropes that other shows or stories or comics or what have you mm-hmm. would copy... Yeah. at some point so i think it's fair to say yeah i mean again that goes into impact territory but uh, i th- i do also think that that has a lot to say of its originality at the time you know yeah so let's uh take some time and discuss the originality of this classic work yeah so as you mentioned earlier uh on the surface of it it's it's it all seems like it's a very straightforward simple story about these kids who are just trying to save their friend while there's a government conspiracy going on and uh, all the forces that are acting behind the scenes to kind of control uh, the powers or to control society itself, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Mm -hmm. To control that society. But I think the thing that makes this original is that I think... For Katashiro Otomo, it it perfectly captures a lot of what Japan was going through at the time. I think it articulates a lot of their anxieties after coming out of World War II, and right. it's it's sincere in that communication, you know, because uh, it, it's hard to talk about Akira without talking about. Japanese society in, in, at this point because I think all that only adds context to what to what he's trying to say in the story mm-hmm. and um, you can read this as an adventure story but that context that you get from you know the current events of Japan at the time and you know their their history following World War II all that just adds context that you know, someone might say that I might be looking too much into it, but I do think that... Who would say that? I don't know. Uh, mouth breather? Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say that that stuff actually, like I said, it, it gives you more context and it allows you to look at it in a different way that might enlighten your reading of it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so at this point in Japanese uh, history... Um, Japan has come out of World War Two. They were. You're talking about the early '80s. Uh, well, I mean, I'm I'm talking about falling World War Two okay. and like building up to the the '80s. Okay. Like so, uh, they were during World War Two. They were a up and coming power, like to the point where they were a threat to the world. But having lost World War Two, um, 
what ends up happening is the United States government essentially makes them a vassal state. Uh, their military is pretty much de deconstructed and, um, and the United, the United States plays a pretty heavy role in kind of shaping their society moving forward yeah. from that point onward. And fast forward to the eighties, what we see is what happens after a couple of generations have passed, uh, what society looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it's, it's almost like I was thinking about it the other day, but it's almost like Japan was a social experiment or a Petri dish in that this is what you get when another country kind of manages these things for you. And, uh, and you do, and your, your country develops within this microcosm of controlled, uh, circumstances mm -hmm. you know so that idea of youth and revolt actually makes a lot of sense because here we have this country where a lot of their i guess what's that word that people use a lot nowadays um Oh, a lot of their agency in some ways has been taken away from them, mm -hmm. and uh, it's dictated by external forces or external powers. And what you see is they've become very successful as a nation. Like at this point in the '80s, Japan was one of the top economies in the world. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of technology and uh, innovation that was coming out of Japan, and you you see that in Akira that this is a very affluent and successful society, but there's something beneath the surface. In I, I'm going to use this term again, but the zeitgeist of the population that that hasn't settled right. You yeah. know, they're they're angry. They don't feel like they have control over their own destiny, and that's kind of what's happening here in this story. Is or what Otomo is communicating is. If you look at, okay, if, if the youth of a nation is seen as the face of a nation, mm -hmm. then what does it say if the youth of their Japan are a bunch of drug-addled maniacs, you know, bikers in a gang? Delinquents. Delinquents, yeah. right? What does that say about uh, the future? Yeah. Uh, if the kids are our future, what does that say that they're all just hopped up on drugs and just you know, causing mayhem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, the other interesting thing to consider is how in the story, um, the, the government is portrayed as corrupt as well. Yeah. And you just get this sense that the youth are in revolt and they're all alienated because they have no authority figures that they can trust. Even there's that scene where, uh, Canada and his gang go to school um, shortly after this thing happens in the beginning where after the biker gang fight yeah after the after the biker gang fight and they go back to school and they're they're punished uh, but it you really get the sense yeah from the way that Otomo portrays their point of view in the story yeah. that even these teachers don't really give a crap about these students they don't care what's going on in their lives but they just know that they're delinquents, so you have to be harsh on them. If you're an animal, I'm going to treat you like an animal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's 
there's no uh, no attempt at any real compassion or understanding or trying to even really trying to understand what the root cause of the problem is. It's just you yeah. are the problem, so we're just gonna get rid of you, um, send you somewhere else, so you'll be somebody else's problem. Yeah, we don't want you here. Even though when you look at the setting of the story, they live in this world that is technologically advanced uh and like you said it's vibrant and lively they have a shopping district that has all these lights and you know technology that suits a 1980s vision of the future yeah um so they they have they have it all but they don't they don't have the thing that is probably uh most important to society which is you know caring for other people yeah so all they really have is uh, their material things and a constant, uh, just I guess this constant urge by those in authority to maintain their power yeah. and, and to keep it and to make sure that the world is the way they see the world, the way the world is conform- conforms to their vision yeah. of the world. Yeah. So even, even when these kids encounter the government or the military or these authority figures, they already know better than to trust them because their whole lives they've been surrounded by reasons not to trust them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think that that context, all of that context does a lot to make it its own thing, to make it unique, to make it original. Mm-hmm. You know, like, so I, up to this point, I'm sure. I'm sure that there was a lot of things going on in the news uh, that was kind of just communicating this, I don't know how to describe it, except societal ennui, you know? Mm -hmm. And what Kachishiro Otomo was able to do was to take that and I think accurately portray that in this futuristic story about these kids. Yeah. Yeah, so... um, even though it's a pretty simple story, all of the subtleties of it really does tell a lot about what's going on. It's a, it's a snapshot in time. Even though it's the, their future, it's a snapshot in time of yeah. what their current state of mind is, you know? Yeah. Um, in terms of other things that make it original, it this was also kind of at the front end of cyberpunk Mm -hmm. uh in terms of its visual style yeah so we mentioned before that there's a lot of technology in their world and they're clearly an affluent society but it's still even though okay so one of the signifying features of cyberpunk is even though they live in a futuristic society it's it's a worn down and old version of the future yeah, and morally, things are yeah not things haven't progressed. It's like a it hasn't like, progressed the way that we would assume we would have assumed it would have with all this it's technology. Like technology progressed, but human nature didn't. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Exactly. So you know, our technology got better, but we didn't get better. If anything, we got worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and that's what you see is you see like really packed cityscapes. And uh, there's a lot of people, then, you know, they're clearly able to take care of themselves. But at the same time, everyone's on drugs and like there's graffiti everywhere. Mm -hmm. Things are kind of breaking down and kind of ugly. 
biker gangs yeah. roam the streets, yeah. causing mayhem and ruckus. If you look at the school that they went to, it just looked like a dump. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to everything else around them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, like, I, I think when, at the time in the 80s, when cyberpunk was becoming kind of big, that up to that point, everything that had envisioned the future had envisioned it as this place where technology is going to bring us utopia. Yeah. You know, like we're going to have replicators. Like it was this Star Trek vision of the future, which was replicators will get rid of hunger and will, none of us will want. And, uh, you know, we're just going to be a society of evolved individuals Mm -hmm. who are going to, we're going to be spacefaring, spacefaring artists and philosophers and scientists (laughs) and like all that. But, what cyberpunk did was it just brought it back down to earth, which was exactly what you said. You know, like technology got better, but we were still just terrible. <laughs> yeah. And even, um, a lot of the defining science fiction, cyberpunk texts, I'm, I'm thinking of novels like, uh, do androids dream of electric sheep by Philip K. Dick, which was made into the movie, uh, Blade Runner. Yeah. That movie and the book, uh, also the novel Neuromancer by William Gibson. Those are, like the defin- defining early text of cyberpunk, but I think what helps Akira really s- stand out in terms of its originality is the the visuals. Of yeah. It. I mean, I, I think I think Blade Runner the movie had already come out by around this time, but Akira really helps define the yeah. look of cyberpunk as much as something like Blade Runner does. Yeah. And I even know for a fact that uh, Otomo didn't read something like Neuromancer because that he said I saw an interview where he said Neuromancer wasn't an influence on him because it hadn't even been translated into Japanese when yeah, he started yeah, yeah. his work on Akira I think it's fair to say that there's uh, there's a chance that he was influenced by something like Blade Runner but at the end of the day I think it's fair to say that they're more or less contemporaries and yeah. like even though Regardless of who came first and who who pitched what first, uh, like they added to each other's works, yeah, you know, definitely. and like those additions to each other ended up shaping cyberpunk as a genre mm-hmm. moving forward. So yeah. like I don't think I don't think it it's it's a situation where he like stole anything or yeah, you know not. he was or that he deserves less credit for you know. Because Blade Runner did it first, or whatever. He deserves all the credit. Yeah, he deserves all the credit for for the additions that he made to that genre. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, cyberpunk moving forward wouldn't be what it was without his contribution. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Akira is a definitive and essential text to the cyberpunk canon. Yeah. In addition to that, another genre that I wanted to discuss uh, in terms of their originality was the genre of body horror, Mm -hmm. which is something that um, up to this point, I had not really heard of it too much. Uh, But it's, it's a little hard for me to describe in terms of uh, what, what encapsulates or what it encapsulates. But my understanding is genre. Yeah. So my understanding is it's horror where the body is kind of out of your control yeah. and 
and that's kind of the the crux of what makes it horrifying to you so it's something as normal as your body but the it's the idea that there are things in it that you can't control or things happening to you invasive it's yeah exactly so um other examples of it would be something like the fly um or um any of those cronenberg films like uh the thing Mm -hmm. uh, where you know um something is happening to your body and you're mutating or you're becoming deformed um the the uh the 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 thing about akira that touches on it is there is one scene as as i mentioned earlier where tetsuo loses control of his powers and or he loses his arm but and it starts to reconstitute itself by taking on this fleshy pulpy substance and it yeah it starts taking on debris and like so it's this weird looking tumor thing with like circuits and wires and rocks coming out of it and yeah it's just this idea that this um this is what happens to your body or this is this is a terrifying thing to have happen to your body this thing that you would assume that you would have control over yeah but you don't right and the other thing that I remember hearing about body horror as a genre is it's supposed to communicate, like... Or, not communicate, but it's... It's an expression of their... feeling towards the modern technological world as mm-hmm. well. So, this idea that as humans evolve and become more advanced we lose control of our bodies because we're just doing things to ourselves. And it sort of makes sense because, again, I might be drawing conclusions that might not be there, but um, after World War II, when the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, they were seeing a lot of people suffering from mutations. And this was something that they had to live with in the advent of the nuclear bomb. So in the 80s, they've kind of seen what happens to a generation of people like when in in, what happens to a generation of people who are suffering from the after effects of this nuclear radiation. Right. So it's a big part of, again, their uh, cultural subconscious Mm -hmm. and it's, it's that storytelling that uh, in Akira that communicates this idea that, what is happening to our bodies? You know, like this technology that brought us so much um, success and so much uh, greatness and so much luxury. It's also the thing that was, it's also technology that ended up doing this to us, you know? It deformed us. It deformed (laughs) us, right? So it's a weird, those are weird ideas to reconcile. Yeah. You know? And especially in the 80s when, like, nuclear power was kind of the it thing, you know, um, there's a global race for nuclear power and nuclear energy, and they're telling you that nuclear energy is the wave of the future, but then you have something like Three Mile Island, and you have something like uh, Chernobyl, and you just see just how terribly wrong this stuff goes. Mm -hmm. So, again, back to that issue of trust, how do you trust anything you can't trust you can't trust government you can't trust technology you can't even trust your own body yeah you can't exactly you can't even trust your own body 
So and it's, that's what's horrifying. When it people is people feel like they lose control of everything that's around them, even something as simple as themselves. Yeah, yeah. Did you uh, have thoughts on the body horror aspect of it? I, I do remember this film from the eighties. Uh, I don't even remember how I heard about it, but. If you look it up on YouTube, it might still actually be there. It's this body horror film called Tetsuo the Iron Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I haven't actually seen it. But it, I tried watching watching it. It's it's uh, it's kind of one of the early like early like uh, what's the word where it leads the way for kind of body horror films. Yeah, following it. Yeah, you know? exactly. It was kind of a forerunner. In yeah, there genre. we go. It's a forerunner. But it was. It was made in the middle or later 80s, I think, done by this Japanese director who was, I guess he was known as an auteur. I don't remember what other movies he worked on, but, but, uh, I mean, obviously even with just the title, right? You can, it's Tetsuo. Yeah. Like, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure that was intentional, but that movie is quite disturbing in terms of its imagery and things that happen if you watch it. Uh, I forget, you said you watched it, right? I tried watching it. Uh, some of it, like I didn't feel like the story really grabbed me, but like the imagery for sure. It's I think that's what it's really known for is yeah. the imagery and and the uh, like the filmmaking aspects. Like in terms of how did they do those effects and make it look convincing? Because it, it's about this guy who wakes up one day. Um, I think he's shaving and he discovers under his skin that uh, there's metal. Yeah, and and suddenly. Uh, his body is turning into metal, and then there's all these weird things going on um, with his body making this metamorphosis, and he can't control it. Yeah, and it's just freaking him out. Yeah, and he starts doing crazy stuff. Like, I, it, it's, it's very bizarre. Like a very bizarre yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. If it's something you watch if you just want to, I guess, expose yourself to something that you've never seen before. I was also gonna say I feel like it's something that you would watch if for like more academic purposes on some level yeah that's like, why i tried watching it yeah not necessarily because it entertained you or entertained me <laughs> yeah it was just yeah it's like oh wow somebody created yeah. this <laughs> like people yeah. worked on a film and made this i mean i i think i'm like you in the sense that i'd heard of this film as something that was lauded in that genre mm-hmm. and as someone who for the better lack of a term, studies entertainment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it's interesting on yeah. that level, you know, to, to see what this thing, this film that inspired so many other things. Uh, what was it about it that influenced all these other things? Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. And, and that the same thing kind of goes for Akira, which is, Except this is more entertaining. Oh yeah, this is yeah yeah for <laughs> Way sure more for sure. I for think sure. I think we got to make that clear. It's, yeah, this it, isn't this isn't an abstract piece of art where you're reading it and you're not entirely understand. Like you, it's you'll understand it. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's he does a great job balance. Otomo does a great job balancing um, the thematic content along with the the entertainment content. Whether that's yeah. entertainment through watching the characters grow and interact with one another and. Or uh, the entertainment that just comes from the pure action element of it. So we've already kind of touched on the ideas of uh, like the social commentary with the youth in revolt. Yeah. And even how it relates to the socio-political context being made 
uh, when it was and relating to how uh, just post-war Japan kind of shaped uh, his vision. Yeah. And we just talked a little bit about the science fiction aspects with cyberpunk and body horror. Uh, another theme that I appreciated from the story was just the simple theme of friendship and loyalty. Like that, I think that was something that carried through the entire way. Uh, I, I really like stories that give you all this stuff to talk about, right? Where you, you can talk about the socio-political context, the social themes, the science fiction themes that get touched on, but... There's, there's a lot also, to unpack. Yeah, there's also the emotional content, too. Yeah. You know, like the, the most basic, maybe the most uh, fundamental element of character-based storytelling, which makes you actually care about these characters. And what he has to say about um, friendship is quite interesting because Kanada, one of the main characters, uh, like how he interacts with people and how he views his friendships kind of drives his so many different story arcs along like you, you have his relationship with k uh his his relationship with tetsuo his relationship with uh kai who's another one of his gang members even his friendship with yamagata the his his gang member who yeah who dies early on in the story yeah like that's not a character that is quickly forgotten you know like that's a character that Kanada, he's always thinking about his friend who died in his arms. Yeah. And he wants just, to avenge him. <laughs> he wants to avenge him. And yeah. even with Tetsuo being one of his friends from when they were kids. Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting to see how the idea of loyalty plays out. Cause you really get the sense that for Canada, this kid, teenage punk delinquent who grew up in the society where he's alienated doesn't trust any adults he can see that there's a corrupt government running things there's no authority figure that he can trust or respect what he sees as a betrayal when tetsuo uh betrays his gang that's like the unpardonable sin yeah it's it's like the thing that pushes him over the edge like if if that didn't happen there's a lot of things that he wouldn't have done in the story. Yeah. If he goes above and beyond to try ab- to rectify that. Exactly. He yeah. he is so hurt and betrayed and angry by a betrayal of trust yeah. that he's willing to you know go to extreme lengths to well could to I change things. So this sort of piggybacks off what we were saying earlier um at at, at least thematically I think mm-hmm. where so in this world where it's obvious that the politicians are corrupt, the schools have failed them, and they don't have anyone else. It it makes sense that their only trust is in each other. Yeah. So you're you're absolutely right when Tetsuo, you know, goes on his power trip and starts just murdering former gang allies or friends. Yeah. Like that that is the thing that sets Kanet off, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's um, yeah, it's 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 good stuff. Like I, I, the whole like what 
six book series is him just chasing this dude down. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he is determined. He's to super get determined. To yeah, and the the crazy thing is, um, you even still get the sense that he deep down inside Canada might want Tetsuo to kind of repent and, and just change right like yeah. he, like there's still a part of Canada where he he's mad at Tetsuo he wants to kill him yeah. but at, but even if he does all that even if he succeeds at killing him yeah he's he'll there's a part of him that still considers Tetsuo his friend yeah like he can't he can't uh forget what they the relationship that they had in the past yeah and i think um man i feel like I, well, i'm i'm going to be talking about the ending right now but whatever it's still worth reading even if you know like roughly what ends. happens yeah but even at the end of the story um after everything's over when when canada kai and k they're just driving yeah. on their motorcycles down the streets right yeah. Do you remember that scene? He, he kind of looks over to his left and he he sees like a vision or the ghost of Yamagata, his his friend who died in the first book. Yeah. Then he looks over to his right and he sees Tetsuo yeah. driving his bike. So it's it's almost like he's he still considers them part of his gang because what they had was a, was a bond that was so strong that even becoming mortal enemies didn't change that. Yeah. Which is it's it's really complex to think about but i think that's how a lot of human relationships really can be in real life as well right it's like if you if you had a friend that you grew up with and and you know did all those things trusted him with your life and then one day he betrays you of course that's going to change it but at the end of it you know you might still have some complex feelings for him you might still think of him as as a friend yeah it's it's very interesting to think about and consider yeah yeah i um not to like get away from that theme there was Mm -hmm. one other thing that i wanted to mention and i guess it since we're talking about the ending anyways yeah um it's it was interesting to me how like by the end of the book so over the course of the book, you kind of develop all these, what all the different factions are that yeah. are vying for power within their society. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to see what that all looks like by the end of the story. Yeah. So once, once Akira goes off and society has collapsed for a second time around right what you see is religious cults spring up yeah and you see like vestiges of the government trying to reclaim control you even see the americans have arrived yep. off the coast and they're trying to retake control of the situation on the ground and yeah i was gonna bring that up too yeah uh, what, what did you have to say I, I i just thought that was another fascinating theme that the book examines is is uh I guess it's like cult like mentalities or or idolatry. Yeah. Where you, they after the destruction of of the city, uh there's uh Lady Miyako, she has like her own kind of cult. Yeah. A sect of followers. Yeah. And and this is something that isn't really touched on in the movie, so to see it developed in the comic is Yeah, that was, was one of the touch. elements that they fleshed out more in the books, definitely. Yeah, because because uh oh yeah maybe we could have mentioned this earlier but in the movie Akira is actually just 
a bunch of body parts because Akira is dead in the movie. Yeah. Whereas in the comic, Akira is still alive, but he was just in cryogenic suspension. Yeah. And, until he gets woken up. But after the destruction, um, Tetsuo and Akira basically form. Uh, they have a bunch of followers, and they end up calling themselves the Great Empire of Neo Tokyo or something. I think right? so. That's or the Great sorry. Tokyo Empire. I, f- I forget the exact phrasing. I think that's right. Great Tokyo Empire. Yeah. 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 So they have all these followers and people who essentially worship them because yeah. they're able to do these incredible feats. Like they can, I think they can heal people, uh, like heal broken bones or things like that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, just the other. F- it's all just offshoots feats. of their telekinesis yeah I think, or telekinesis yeah. slash telepathy i mean they're the the powers kind of vary wildly yeah they're yeah. sort of vaguely defined yeah but we just know that they're really powerful i mean there's a scene at one point where akira under his own will and power flies into space yeah beats up a satellite doesn't he even it's leave a akira, mark on the or tetsuo tetsuo yeah. he goes up flies up destroys a satellite doesn't he even yeah. go to the moon and, and leave a mark on the moon what he does, from what I remember, is he pulls a chunk of the moon out yeah. or something like that. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it's just interesting to me, like, if this book is a expression of their anxiety towards the government and towards the progression of their society, like, when you get to the very end of it, what you see is... After after Akira's gone and Tetsuo's gone and society has, or like basically the remnants of their society are just left with nothing but chaos, mm-hmm. it's, it, it ends on this note where it's, it's almost like Mad Max or something where it's just, yeah. you, you kind of just watch the biker gangs kind of roll off into the wilderness, even though the Americans, so it ends with the Americans coming to this island in the aftermath of the cataclysm Mm -hmm. and they're trying to reestablish control but the people Canada and his and other various factions are kind of rejecting it they they take this as an opportunity to rob these guys and just to so I do think in a way that's that's an expression of them reclaiming their agency if that makes any sense it's just Again, if you look at this in the context of Japan as a society is developing its growing pains and they went from being a a global power that was on the verge of taking over the world. I mean, I don't think it was right. I think it was bad, but, um, but being bombed back into the Stone Age and then rebuilt as this civilization where that was completely under the control of another, uh, foreign power again they they develop this sense of yeah look at all the great things we've done but what the trade-off is we've given up like ourselves so i i feel like that's being communicated in this book and mm-hmm. uh this this sense of we like if we're to view the future as these young punks then there's something to be idolized in them rejecting authority and taking control and again like it's that imagery at the end of the book where japan has been devastated the american powers are back on this island Mm -hmm. just like at the end of world war ii and 
who are we following? We're following the biker gangs as yeah. they're robbing the Americans. Yeah. So it's like, it's almost like they get a, this story is a chance for them to have a fictional second chance at let's build our society again, but this time we're going to be in control of it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's another really fascinating thing to consider. Yeah. And I do think that the ending, um, does, it is, I think it is more of a hopeful ending. Yeah. That, cause even though there is a lot of devastation in the story, there is also hope at the end of it. Yeah. It, it's, it's more uplifting and inspir- inspiring than you would expect, you, which is interesting because I feel like nihilism is another major theme of this comic. Yeah. But it's almost... Um, I don't know if I could completely outright just say that the story is a rejection of that philosophy, but I will say that the story, while... Rejection are, of nihilism? Yeah. Or, okay. Yeah, but I will say that, that the ending does show that there is hope so yeah if everything were meaningless then why what would be the point of hope yeah. you know like there wouldn't be a point to that but there is a sense of of hope and and rebuilding redemption even even a character like the colonel yeah who represents in the beginning of the story he represents authority the authority <laughs> yeah. that the delinquents that the youth don't trust you know youth in revolt who are they revolting against people like the colonel yeah, he's this military leader who is out to try and recapture uh, these lost espers or psychics. Yeah, and and he captured Tetsuo and and things like that. So he's doing stuff that is clearly at odds against them. But after the the cataclysm in the middle of the story, he he can kind of set aside that um, I don't know that. He, he understands that the mission priorities have changed. You know, it's, it's no longer just about teaching these punk kids a lesson. But there's something bigger going on, namely the survival of society. Yeah. So he's he's willing even to set those, set set aside those odds and, and even help and work alongside Kanada and, and his group. Yeah. There, there's just that understanding that this guy starts off as an antagonist, but there's layers of moral complexity to him too he's not just a guy who's constantly gonna be there to be an obstacle for the protagonist but he evolved into this character that you may not necessarily sympathize or empathize or maybe you will but um there's an element to his character where you're able to understand that this is a it's almost like a real person who who has someone who has depth and complexity where mm. he's not just one note sticking to the same like a one track mind but yeah. he's willing to adapt and even change and even help uh yeah the youth yeah i totally get what you mean when you say that the ending is a hopeful one which is weird because at this point the equivalent of a second atomic bomb has yeah. gone off in Japan, and you yeah. can see that, I guess, by our standards, all the luxuries and all the tangible things that we value are destroyed. Yeah. You know, so for most people, they'd look at that and they'd just be like, this is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> but, exactly. But how does the book end? It's them riding off into the sunset. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're heroic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... And again, there's there's those elements of moral ambiguity, ambiguity where 
they're still kind of jerks. They're still kind yeah, of... Yeah, they're still delinquents. Yeah, but I guess it sort of celebrates that that uh, delinquency to some level, if, if that makes any sense. It, it's almost it's like saying that they're, they're youthful... Would you call it idealism? They have free spirit. Yeah. It's that free spirit, right? Yeah. Like, the, the same thing that we kind of view as destructive tendencies can also be viewed as... It's a it's, freedom, yeah, it, to some degree. Yeah, uh, the authority figures or the adults may see these delinquent teenagers, free spirits, as something that is destructive. But from another point of view, at least in this story and and the situations that they face, that same free spirit, or I don't even know if you would call it idealism, yeah, but just that energy, th- that whatever it is that was in them that caused them to be teenage Rebels. delinquents, yeah. yeah that was also the reason for their human resiliency. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think that human resiliency is another major theme of the work because it it, it just shows you the, the spirit of not only the uh, Kanada and the other, uh, the rest of his gang, but yeah. but even the people in general, like society as a whole in the story. It still, they're still keeps going. Yeah, they're still trying to yeah. survive, do whatever it yeah. can, do whatever they can to, to keep on living. Even no matter if, the whole city has been destroyed again. They will yeah. do what it takes to survive. To build from the ashes. Rebuild. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Canada, Canada is a... His very existence is a testament to that resiliency. He's just a normal dude... Yeah. ...who's fighting this guy who's more or less a god. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he... Tetsuo has all these psychic powers. He... Like I said earlier, he pulled a chunk of the moon yeah. out. And uh, all Canada has is... A laser gun and maybe a bike. Yeah. <laughs> if he's lucky. Yeah. You know? And friends and his yeah. own wit. Yeah. And he just constantly survives. Yeah. You know? And yeah, you're right. He has that wit and he has that uh, persistence. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm seeing it more now more than ever. But if, again, if Canada is a stand in for just the future of Japanese society, then. He 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 contains in him all of those traits that they need in order to flourish to move forward. Yeah, you know? exactly. And it's it's interesting that we've spent so much time talking about Canada, uh, but another uh, major character is Kay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she's another one of the main characters. I think in the if you watch the movie, she come she just comes across as sort of like the love interest, but in in the manga. She's a very major character as much as a uh, Canada, and like it, I think it, like if we spent the time to really delve into her story, also I'm sure we would have just as much to say. Yeah. But it just goes to show you overall that this whole work as a as a whole, um, in its entirety, like there's a lot that you can uh, analyze and ponder. Yeah. So it, it's something that just rewards uh multiple readings yeah absolutely and it helps that it's like this might sound like a slight and i don't mean it as such but it's just it's a it's not dense at all it's a super light read and like you can kind of go through it but that allows you to just read it multiple times and kind of glean more information with each additional reading it doesn't feel like work yeah it's it yeah. feels like it's, it feels like pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we touched on it a little bit. We touched on uh, 
the originality, but it's it's tough to talk about the originality without touching on the impact of it. Mm-hmm. And we, like mm-hmm. I said, we we did discuss it a little bit in terms of how it affected um, other genres moving forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, did you have any other ideas on that? Yeah, but before I get too deep into that aspect of its influence and impact, uh-huh. I do want to talk a little bit about how uh, the Marvel publication of Akira specifically impacted oh, comics. right, right, right. So, Akira uh, from Epic Comics was one of the first manga to be translated and fully published in America. Mm-hmm. I think Viz started up around that time and started publishing a few series, maybe a year or so before Akira. Some of those series were things like My the Psychic Girl, yeah. Legend of Kamui, and this other one called Area 88, which was a pretty fun uh, mercenary fighter pilot story. I don't know if all of those were published to their completion, but I know Akira for sure was, and those comics were also um, published in black and white. I think they were flopped also, don't remember, but... But uh, Akira, at the very least, we can say Akira was part of that first wave of manga to be brought over to America and really paved the way for more and more manga in our country. Especially uh, as time progressed throughout the 90s and then especially in the early 2000s, the proliferation of manga had a major impact on the comics industry. Yeah, you could... Well, I wouldn't say that it kept it afloat, but it was a major injection of readership. A major injection of readership. It heavily impacted the bookstore market, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, Borders and Barnes and Noble. They've got entire just sections of manga now, just massive. Yeah. By comparison to what we had in those early days. Exactly, and a lot of manga uh, collections ended up being very uh, high sellers. Mm. Impacted. Um, the business in that way. Yeah. So show that the, the bookstore market was a viable uh, outlet for comics as opposed to merely uh, specialty, direct, the direct market. Yeah. Just yeah. comic shops. Another thing is is that um, Akira, when Epic published it, we mentioned it earlier at the top of the show that it was published in color. Mm. So originally the manga was in black and white. As most mangas are. Mm-hmm. But in comics... It in Epic Comics uh, pioneered groundbreaking coloring techniques with it. Yeah. So Steve Olaf, uh, who founded this company called Ali Optics, he was actually handpicked by Otomo himself to oh. color the comic. Nice. Yeah. Apparently, I think Marvel decided that they needed to color it in order to make it more attractive to Western, Western audiences. audiences. Yeah. So they they got some different uh, artists to sample colors and Olaf ended up just you know going all out on his sample pages to really show what a great job he could do he was the guy then yeah and he was he was the guy and and I was reading up on it Otomo was so pleased with Steve Olaf's coloring that after you know after a while, in the beginning he, he Olaf would send him uh drafts you know to for approval to see you know is this okay do you like this yeah but after a certain amount of time passed otomo was like you don't even have to send me that stuff just you know i trust you so you can just do it um another thing that 
kind of shows you uh, how good it was is that his coloring, his colored version of Akira was eventually uh, retranslated into Jap back translated back into Japanese <laughs> so that the Japanese audience could enjoy the yeah. colorized version of Akira. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, that is really cool. Like, yeah, I'm flipping through this right now and it is gorgeous stuff. Yeah, yeah. We, we have copies of the Kodansha Anniversary Edition that's in black and white and hardcover. Yeah. But we also have an issue of the original Epic uh, publication that, that we're holding. Just yeah. flipping through it, admiring the coloring. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is that it was the first major comic to use computer coloring. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's a huge a part huge of impact. Thing. Yeah, it's yeah. A, that's massive. It 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 allowed for uh efficient color separations cuz I don't know if if you really studied uh how comics were colored in the past, but it, it seemed pretty complex. Like I don't even know if if I know like every single step, but the from what I understand, the process back then was you you would have a a color guide artist who would basically determine okay this person needs to have this shade of color yeah or this object has that shade and then there would be um a special code because i think it was like 64 number code or something yeah or 64 colors um so you'd have to have like a mishmash of like 25 percent of this or oh. of the cmyk uh spectrum or whatever it's called so you would have a code that do that would uh specify exactly how much of each of those colors uh would make up the color that you wanted to appear on the printed page yeah so there would be a guy who would uh do that label everything and then you would send it off to um the color separator and the color separator was this separate entity and they would take the code and match up all of the colors with the code and put that on the printed page. So it was kind of like this process that was limited. Um, and I guess it wasn't as efficient. Mm. So with the advent of computer coloring, Olaf learned basically to combine those two jobs. So it was just one guy yeah. doing everything and he could use, there was no limit to the gradations because um, with the computer coloring, he could use a lot more, a lot more different shades and, and, gradients mm. so it, it was just um something special because no other comic looked like it at the time yeah even mm. when you look at it now it still holds up i think it does yeah. I, I think it really does it's pretty warm and like it it's the colors aren't garish or anything yeah. it doesn't like hurt your eyes to look at it it's just it's i don't know how else to put it but it's kind of cozy <laughs> you know mm-hmm yeah and S Steve Olaf was a big pioneer th of this technique of computer coloring, and then obviously, and it ended up uh, taking over the whole industry, becoming yeah. the standard. When Image Comics launched in the early '90s, Steve Olaf colored a lot of those. You know, yeah, he and his company did your Spawn Number One. Um, basically, most I, think I forgive him. <laughs> <laughs> He gave us Akira, okay. Yeah, yeah. He, I mean, his, his coloring defined the look of yeah. image at the time. Because yeah. I, I think one of the things that def that made the image comics stand out was their their paper and their coloring. Like it, yeah. it popped. You know, even yeah, if yeah. if I don't if I don't like their the penciling or the stories, I have to say the coloring still stood out. Like yeah, you could take an image comic from the launch era, 
compared to a Marvel comic from the same era. Yeah. There's a big difference. Like yeah. You can tell just from the paper they use to I remember, be able to display those colors. Yeah, I remember those old comics like uh, Shadowhawk or Savage Dragon. They had that kind of starchy paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, yeah, the coloring sort of had that same effect. Yeah, it, it wasn't like, just newsprint. Yeah, cause, exactly. Cause with, I, don't, I don't think newsprint would really benefit from computer coloring. Yeah. But, but yeah, anyway, all that to say how the coloring in Akira was a big influence on coloring in comics moving yeah. forward yeah no that's that's absolutely a good point yeah and, uh that's not something i would have known unless he had mentioned it so yeah <laughs> that is that is um a testament to one of the lesser known impacts that it had on the industry yeah definitely yeah. oh okay and of course we we gotta talk about the impact of akira the work itself and what impact it had on everything um obviously there is an anime that was based on this comic yeah and that anime in itself turned out to be one of the most important and influential animes of its time yeah of all time yeah absolutely um it's it's so weird to think of um it's it's almost this instance where lightning strikes twice, mm-hmm. where the comic, you you should be so fortunate to create something that was as influential and impactful as it was once, but to do it again or do a different iteration of it, and then have that have such a great impact on another field of entertainment, even though they're essentially the same thing or yeah. like not. Yeah, even though they're essentially the same thing, that's it's it's crazy to think about, yeah. you know. So and Katsuhiro Otomo directed the movie too. Yeah, he, he did. He took he. I think he successfully negotiated a way so that if they were gonna make a movie based on his comic, yeah, then he would have to have uh, creative control over it. Yeah. So he was able to do that, and it's crazy to think that he was so talented to be able to s- succeed in two different mediums. Yeah, and. Um, even to this day, they're still trying to do a live-action version of this movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't really have too much faith in it, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. But everybody's always trying to imitate Akira. Akira's always yeah. inf- always cited as an influence for all sorts of different things. Maybe, maybe sometimes um, movie directors and whatnot cite the anime as an influence more so than the comic. Yeah. But things like movies like dark city or the matrix yeah you know people chronicle or chronicle yeah those are movies where people the directors have outright stated akira was an influence on what we made absolutely and then there's of course all sorts of other anime and manga that came out in the wake of akira that could point to akira as a major influence you know stuff from ghost in the shell yeah um armitage 3 even cowboy bebop just, just a lot of science fiction anime that points to Akira as, as some sort of influence. Mm. Huh. Battle Angel Alita. That's oh, yeah. One. Battle Angel yeah. Alita is definitely... I mean, there's another example of something that even now... Like, we just had a live-action movie based on that, too. So, yeah. clearly, like, these things have, have a lot of... Uh, weight in popular culture yeah you know yeah definitely yeah akira is something that is known 
the world over. Uh, I was looking at Wikipedia, yeah. and the stats are a little old because uh, it goes back to 2005. But back, at least in 2005, um, Akira was was published in over a dozen languages. Yeah, and has sold over five million copies. Yeah, which is a lot for a comic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean we're over here struggling with a hundred thousand copies nowadays. Yeah, that's considered a good day for a lot of comics. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So, what do you think about Akira's ability to withstand the test of time, which is our fourth criteria? Yeah. Uh. So I think, as a work, that Akira is more suited now more than ever to, uh, accurately withstand the test of time. I mm-hmm. mean, because it's already withstood the test of time. Yeah, it's we're been 37 years and yeah. we're still discovering new things as we read it. Exactly. We don't we didn't read I didn't read this and go, "Oh man, that didn't make sense." Yeah. What is that? You know, like the I know that uh I mentioned earlier that a lot of this is already a lot of Akira it was based on whatever was going on at the time in Japanese society. So, but I don't think that that limits it to being something that I could have only read in mm-hmm. the 80s, you know? Yeah. Like, uh, time marches forward, and I think it's fair to stay, say that even now, even currently in Japanese society, there's still a lot of things that they're dealing with that are extensions of their of the problems that they've developed, Mm -hmm. you know, if anything, they're probably more magnified now. Yeah. You know? Um, so, so although it's a snapshot in history, it's, I, I, I think it does a good job of communicating those, um, those conflicts, those anxieties. And again, it's, it's a testament to the, translation too i suppose but i i don't read this feeling that i don't read this with the feeling that i'm taken out of the story or that because you know the language is dated or even even if the technology isn't quite you know where we are now i wouldn't look at it Mm -hmm. and be like oh man that I, they don't have smartphones. Yeah, yeah, they don't have smartphones or something like that. That doesn't. They don't have VR. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't impact me, you know. Like I can, I can still appreciate it for its strongest characteristic, which is the human stories mm-hmm. and uh, the the statements, the 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 political statements that it mm-hmm. makes. So, I do think that it's it's a powerful work that educates. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And all of the imitators cannot dilute its power. Yeah, absolutely it, not. Yeah, it it's going to withstand all the imitations. Yeah. No matter how many times other people kind of riff or even rip off the imagery or ideas. Yeah. Like Akira is still going to feel fresh when you read it because there's just something that you can't imitate about the voice yeah. of the story. There, It's it's very special. It, it It's... It's a powerful, cohesive classic that just has important messages to communicate yeah. while never failing to entertain. And it has a lot of emotional depth. Yeah. All of all of that makes it eminently re-readable 
over and over. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's there's a reason that people are still reading it today. There's a reason that it's still something that you can pick up and you can totally make sense of. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, yeah. It gets it definitely gets high marks for its ability to withstand the test of time. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's it's one of those books. I feel like anybody who is serious about comics should take the time and at least read it. Yeah. Um, just for, just to educate yourself, you know, like even if it's not something that you want to own, I mean, I would say it's definitely worth owning, but I feel like if somebody wants to study comics as an art form, like yeah. the cure is definitely one of the texts that you absolutely have to read. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I feel like just pouring over the pages, there are things in its uh, storytelling technique that, I mean, I'm not versed enough in uh, in like sequential storytelling where I could tell you exactly what I'd be getting from it, but I, I could imagine that there's a class out there somewhere where if they broke it down, you could learn so much about just panel to panel storytelling yeah definitely pacing choreography framing yeah 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 Yeah. absolutely Mm. yeah read akira for a master class on storytelling yep it is number six Mm -hmm. number six on the greatest marvels of all time yeah any other closing remarks no i i think i think i've uh been able to pour out my heart and my love for this book and i couldn't recommend it enough it's it's a beautiful book and it's a thought-provoking piece of work absolutely yeah cool this is between the gutters signing off signed off what's the catchphrase uh which one your catchphrase you know that thing you always say Will it be beautiful? I was hoping for a shanka donka. You weren't gonna give me a shanka donka. I was gonna try to f- switch it up, see what we could do. <laughs> Say it again. I don't even know how to spell that. Will it be beautiful? Oh, okay. Albert. Albert is speaking in tongues now. There's a gas leak in here. <laughs>